0: Please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10-17. through 17. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no division among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by the name which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am a Paul, and I have a and I of Apollos, and I have of Cephas, and I have of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I baptized in my own name, and I baptized also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptize any other, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect.
1: Thank you, Aiden, for that reading. It's wonderful to be here with you this morning. For those of you that are visiting with us, we're certainly pleased by your presence and pray that our service is edifying. It's build you up and encouraging. I hope the things that I present to you will be uh, encouraging to you as well, that you'll help you in your relationship with God in some way. This morning, we continue looking in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to talk about divisions this morning. I know that's not a very Eastery sermon, but that's where we're at in the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning, I want you to Look at a church or think of a church or imagine a congregation that's racked by division. Powerful leaders promote themselves and they have different people following after them. You have some following after them. They're getting different groups of people to follow after them. One of them is having an affair and he's having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of disciplining him, they boast in his right to do so and his freedom in Christ. Christians sue each other in secular courts. Arguments and debates rage on about women's role, about past disagreements, about liberties that are had. A certain faction of this congregation to combat against the immorality has now began to promote celibacy, whether married or unmarried. If all of this isn't enough, there are problems with spiritual gifts, prophecies, speaking in tongues. There are are congregates that are clamoring for other spiritual gifts. There are those that are taking their spiritual gifts and elevating themselves above, above other people. And if this wasn't enough, there is a large group of them that don't even believe in a bodily resurrection. This was the church at Corinth. This were the many problems that you saw and that we talk about in the book of Corinth. And it sounds like to be completely honest, a lot of Western Christianity today. It's no surprise and shouldn't surprise us at all that mankind hasn't changed in 2,000 years. That the same problems that were in Corinth are the same problems that we have today, which makes Corinth, in Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, very relevant. Now, as we begin looking at this, and we kind of have our outline Last time we began, we looked at the first nine verses, and we looked at our position and the possessions that we have in Christ. Our position that we have, being a part of Him and and having that relationship with Him because of Him, and the possessions we have, grace, fellowship with Christ. We have the gospel, these great possessions that we have. And today we're going to look at divisions in the church, and that's the first four chapters we're going to look at that in two different sections. The next group is depravities, and then in chapters seven through ten, there's personal problems that they had wrote to Paul about, and he writes and says, "Here's some solutions to your problems." And chapters eleven through fourteen, he begins to talk about worship problems and problems that they had assembling together, and in there is nested that chapter that we oftentimes look at. We call it the love chapter, and I find it inter- interesting that Paul would place that there, but it only speaks to God's ability to teach. All of these things, these problems, personal problems, depravities, and then he talks about love, and that love flows backwards and forwards in the sense that it flows backwards to our relationships with one another, but it also flows forward in, the, in our worship and how we come to God and offer our worship. He then concludes that in chapter 15, dealing with this subject Of a resurrection. Now, before we move on in our study today, I found it extremely interesting that through no discussion between Justin and I, we've coincidentally began doing a study of he's doing Thessalonians and I'm doing Corinthians. And I find it interesting because there is a wonderful contrast here. Thessalonians, he deals with a lot of the same subject in the letter to them but he deals with it in a very positive kind of manner. Justin talked about they were kind of that model congregation and how they were conducting themselves. And then you have Corinth, who wouldn't be the model congregation, and there's a little bit different tone as he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. So as we begin looking at division today, I want us to understand what Paul's goal for the church is. What saves a congregation from being divided? And that's how he begins looking at that this morning. And I use the King James Version. I put the versions on all the verses up here. The King James Version for this group of verses only because I like the way it's worded. I like the phrase same. He says that three times. That you speak the same thing. That you have the same mind and that you have the same judgment. That's two things that we need to talk about. First and foremost, if we're going to speak the same mind, have the same judgment, and look at things through the way that He wants us to view them, we have to align our ideas not with one another, but with a gospel perspective. With a gospel view. Now Paul's goal wasn't for them to have the same mind where someone was maybe had a type A personality and everybody followed after what that person did. That's what he's trying to combat against. What he's trying to get them to understand is that they have the same that it's within that it's in line with the gospel. Second, to be able to have the same mind, same judgment, speak the same things, what does that require? That requires that you be together. That's a problem in Western Christianity because this is what we do many times and it's not who we are. And there is the challenge in having a same mind, a same judgment, and speaking the same things. If we get together a couple times a week and that's all we ever do, how are we going to have the same mind? If I'm not in your home, if I don't have relationships with you, how do I know that I'm going to have the same judgment? It's impossible. That requires time spent, time invested in one another's lives. Paul talks about unity and what destroys unity. The fact that it had been reported to them, To him, That there were those that were saying that I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he has three very important questions here. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Who are you following after whenever these people are the ones trying to teach you the gospel and teach you the ways of Jesus Christ, and you're following after them instead of Jesus Christ? This kind of sets up one of the great principles that he talks about throughout the next couple of chapters and understanding their position in their own maturity because that was the problem that they were having. This speaks to a very immature group of people that they would follow after those that taught the principle instead of the principle and the person that died for them on the cross. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Does that mean that Paul was saying, hey, you don't need to be baptized? That's not what Paul was talking about. As a matter of fact, if you think about what he's going through in the process of what he's going through here, is one that he already is acknowledging that they had been baptized. The problem wasn't that they'd been baptized or that they needed to be baptized, the problem was who they were following after, and the person who was baptizing them. So it wasn't a question of whether or not they needed to be baptized, but whether they needed to follow Christ or the person doing the baptizing. And the person doing the baptizing had nothing to do with their salvation. It had to do with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He ends this by saying, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What does that mean? How is the cross of Christ emptied of its power? You see, when the cross is being taught, and Christ and Him crucified, people are focused on the cross. But if you have people that have great power, eloquent words, can say great things, have great oratory skills, and that, purpose, that person becomes the focus, guess what? They're not looking at the cross. They were looking somewhere else. If you're not looking at the cross, its power is gone. In Romans chapter 1, and verse 12, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel begins with the cross. If we're not focused on the cross, it loses its power. One of the greatest principles to that and understanding that we have today isn't so much that we have a problem with Jason and everybody falling after Jason, or Jeffrey and everybody falling after Jeffrey, or Carrie and people falling after Carrie, or Pat Manon, or Truman Till. The problem we have is focus. And anything that takes our focus from the cross of Christ causes it to lose its power. In modern day Christianity, I know that we think in terms of, when we look at a passage like that, we think of you know, great televangelists and things like that. But it goes so much further than that. It goes down to a level in which if the cross is not the point and the focus that we have in proving and showing to other people and demonstrating the power of God, then we have a problem. As Paul continues in his thoughts, we need to take a moment to reset our perspective on the cross. He says in the next verse, in verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. That it's folly or that it's foolish. I know you go many homes today and you go look on someone's wall and you you may have a cross. You drive down, in the south especially, you can drive down the road and see crosses on the side of the road. Some of them very large. You see crosses on necklaces. You see crosses on stickers on the back of cars. Because that's the message of hope that we understand. But to these people, the cross was not the message of hope. I want you to think of it in terms of our capital punishment. I don't drive down the highway and see an electric, a large statue of electric chair. I don't see syringes on the back of stickers on cars representing capital punishment that we have in this nation. I think most states that have capital punishment, it's lethal injection. There's a few that still have an electric chair. I read an article this last week, a guy in Georgia actually asked to be killed through a, through a firing squad. Those aren't messages of hope to us, are they? We don't carry or build statues or monuments of electric chairs, do we? I was going to say, you don't see necklaces or pendants of electric chairs or syringes, but I was wrong, and I decided to look that up before I said that. You actually can find those. To these people, the cross was not hopeful. The cross was not joyful. The cross was not sanitized. The cross was deplorable. The cross was despicable. The cross was something that no one wanted to talk about. And it was definitely not the thing that you would pin the hope of salvation of mankind on. But that's exactly what Paul was saying. He was talking about the fact that there was power in the cross. And then he goes on to say, there's two different groups. So I want you to set your mind up to understand what Paul does through the, this next two chapters. He pointedly goes and sets things in two different groups over and over again. And in this instance, he sets it up in the perishing and the saved. He said, the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God, For I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, the, the, excuse me the discerning, I will thwart. Through the cross, through what was perceived as foolish, how could you pin your hopes on this thing, this form of capital punishment, this would be the very thing in which I would put the salvation of mankind upon. Paul then asked three rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise in verse 20? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And think about the groups that he's talking about here. Where is the wise? And this isn't wise in the terms of Proverbs or Solomon in which we think of. This is those that are wise in the world, that understand concepts in the world, that maybe understand how the universe operates and all those wonderful things. Where is the scribe? And this is what he's referring to here is those that would think that they have knowledge of God. This would be much like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Christ's time that thought they understood the principles of God when they were actually pushing people away from God. And he asked that question where is that scribe? Where is the one who thinks he understands God? Where is the debater of this age? Where is the one that understands all of these things and can debate and argue and understand these? Where are all of these things? Where are all of these people? Because it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So this contrast that he sets up over and over as we go through of foolishness and wisdom. The foolishness of what people perceive to be foolish because it comes from God and it doesn't properly align with everything the world teaches and that which the world teaches. I have to be honest with you. When I was younger, I used to take a great amount of confidence in those that I knew around me that were much more intelligent than I am, that had submitted themselves to the power of the cross. And I look around this room today, and I know there are engineers and doctors and all of those minds that are out there. And when I was younger, I took great confidence because I would look at them and go, man, they're so much smarter and intelligent than I am. And they understand this like I do. But I realized later on that that's foolish. Because I was falling into the very trap that they were falling into themselves. They were having division because they weren't understanding the true power and wisdom of God. It didn't matter if I thought Justin was the smartest guy in the world and that he worshiped the same God that I do, that he had submitted himself to the same Jesus Christ as I do. Those don't matter. His ability or intelligence is irrelevant as far as God's concerned. God's wisdom is one that says that I have Foolishness in the cross. And in that is where your salvation comes from. Not ability, not how smart you are, not what you can derive from this world. It pleased God through this foolishness to save mankind. He goes on to talk about two different groups again. The Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. Today, it's the exact same thing. These same groups are still out there. You know, the Jews, when they came to Christ and they said they wanted to see a sign, it wasn't for the purpose of saying that this is the Messiah, this is the one who's going to come back and establish us and save us. It was so that they could look at Him and say, these are the reasons that you're not the Messiah because We have the truth and you don't. And the very same people in that time that said everything that Paul was teaching was foolish are the same people that are saying it today. How can we think that God is a God when you have all of these great universal principles and you could go on and talk about how all of the things in the Scriptures point to that, but the reality is, at the same time, it's about who or what we're willing to submit ourselves to. Submit ourselves to our own intelligence, or submit ourselves to God's plan. Their immaturity had caused them to allow the world to seep into their congregation and in doing so had allowed this wisdom of the world to begin to corrupt God's plan and God's purpose for them. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. In verse 24. To the Jews and the gentiles both called refer back to Romans chapter 1 and verse 12 for I'm not ashamed of the gospel or for the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe both Jew and Greek it was meant for everyone what they needed to understand and what they were misunderstanding in this was the fact that they had these different groups and factions that were breaking up within the church, and all of these people following different people, and they had not understood the great wisdom of God and the power of the cross and what the purpose was in their congregation. How does division oftentimes start? It begins with me, right? I'm not saying I'm dividing this congregation. But it begins with looking at me, isn't it? I remember we moved from our old building to this building, and Carrie's probably not going to appreciate this story, but we used to have this doily that was on the old communion table over there. And we were moving, we were standing around that communion table, and I remember a discussion what do we do with the doily? It had become old and tattered. I mean, the thing kind of went all the way across and kind of hung on the side. We'd had a bunch of kids reaching on it and jerking on it, and it was just old. My thought was throw it away. And someone said, you know, well, somebody's grandmother or great-grandmother could have made that and given that to the church. Okay, that's that's a valid point. It's old, it's tattered, we need to get rid of it. If we won't, maybe we put out word and Somebody's grandmother or great-grandmother that made this, let's ask them if they want it. And it became a conversation that, in my mind, went way too long. But I remember Craig Kill in that conversation, and in his wisdom and his experience. He made a statement. Now, I'm not going to say it word for word because I don't remember but the statement, the gist of the statement was this that congregations had split over smaller things. I have to be completely honest. I was floored by that statement. That congregations had split over smaller things. How is it possible that a congregation would split over whether or not we brought the doily over here? You know how that's possible? Because somebody said it's about me. And a new phrase that I like to say a lot, it's not about me, it's about we. Therein lies how they got to the problem that they were having. You make all these little things, instead of making it about the power of the cross and what it could do for them and their congregation, they were making it about a doily, Puffing themselves up. He preaches Christ and Christ crucified because it presents a problem to any group that doesn't understand it. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. How could a Messiah come and be killed? To the Greeks, they wouldn't understand it. It was foolishness. How could a Savior be submitted to the system of capital punishment? None of it makes sense which speaks more to the power and the wisdom of God than ever before. You know, the challenge that we have today isn't so much the, what the world says. That's out there. That's, we know that and we understand that. The world has always been opposed to God. It's always been opposed to the power of the cross, and we understand that. The challenge that's on our footstep today, on our doorstep today, is this combination of the world and God's Word. My wife is a teacher, and she teaches high school, and she hears conversations about God, religion, spirituality all the time. And the discussions that we've had, she's never been able to put her finger on it as to how you could kind of identify it, maybe label it. Let's just say, I know we don't like labels, let's put a label on it. How would you label that? How would you point at that and go, that's what that is? Until recently, she told me about this. Moralistic therapeutic deism. In 2005, a sociologist interviewed a bunch of teenagers, and this is what came out of this interview in the book that he wrote based on that, and the principles of that are this, belief in a God who remains distant from people's lives. People are supposed to be good to each other, i.e. moral. The universal purpose of life is being happy and feeling good about oneself, that there are no absolute moral truths. God allows good people into heaven, and God places very limited demands on people. Now, I want you to remember what year. This guy did this study. It was in 2005. The teenagers that he asked these questions to now, they're all adults and they're raising children themselves. Now, it's not my intention to mock this or go through all of these and say if they're wrong or why they're wrong and all of that. My point is this. This is what's on your doorstep. This is what your children are learning in school. This is the idea that our children are being taught. Therein lies our challenge today. Not only do we have to deal with the world and what the world is teaching and the opposition that we have, but we also need to understand this element of combining the world with God, because that makes people feel good. We need to always look back at the principle of the power of the cross and the wisdom that God had in presenting that power. He begins to refer back to their state when they were saved. He says in the next verse, in chapter chapter, uh, 1 and verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. There weren't a lot of you that had this great intelligence in the world. There weren't a lot of you that had a lot of money. There weren't a lot of you that had nobility or a great name. And you submitted to this power of the cross. You submitted to the wisdom of God because of why? They understood their inadequacy. The person that does not feel inadequate before God is never going to submit to God. The person that looks at the cross and says that it's foolish and that I will not submit to it is not going to understand it. The person on the other side of that that says that I'm this great person and I have all of these wonderful abilities, it's not about them. It is only by God's love, grace, and mercy that we are made something. And that we're made something wonderful in His presence, that we're made something, something wonderful in His kingdom. And apart from that, we are completely inadequate. It doesn't matter what kind of abilities we have. We're completely inadequate. And God chose what the world deemed as foolish to save mankind. He says in verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing to things that are. And I want you to think about... In that term alone, in that passage alone, and think about Christ and what Christ was. Christ was of a lowly birth. He wasn't didn't come from a wealthy family. He didn't have a lot. In his time on the earth, he relied on other people to tend to his needs. But from that what did God create? Your salvation from the lowliest of lows, from things that are despised, from the poor. It was because of that and from that that we even have salvation. So why would you even begin to look at somebody else? Why would I even begin to look at somebody else all around me and go, oh, I have great confidence because Trevor's so smart and he's submitted to the gospel of Christ. Because my focus would be wrong and their focus was wrong at the same time. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25, it says, At this time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Christ acknowledged in his prayer to God that he was thankful that he hid this. That the leaders of the world and those that would consider them great, that they didn't understand it. And he goes on to say later on that if they did understand it, that they wouldn't have killed Christ. And it's in the things that we consider weak that He gave salvation. And it's because of Him and because of Christ Jesus who came to us Wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption in verse 30. In verse 31, he capitalized this, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9. And he says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declare the Lord. Where is your boasting? And where was their boasting? The problem that caused division in Corinth is they were looking at the wrong place and the wrong people. The problem today is the same problem. We puff ourselves up. We boast in our abilities. We boast in our wealth. We boast in the things that we're gifted with and blessed with instead of boasting in the one thing that we need to boast in, which is knowing God and His love and His principles. When you get enough people doing that, what happens? You have a divided people. You have people that Say, follow me, or look at me, or look at these great things that I've done, or look at these great things that I have. To prove and drive this point home, Paul uses himself as an example. He says, you know, when I came to you, I, didn't claim, I came to you proclaiming the testimony of God, not with loft, lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And he says, I was with you in trembling, I was with you in weakness, I was with you in fear. I want you to think about in Acts chapter 18, as Paul came to Corinth, what had happened immediately preceding when he came to Corinth, the church at Corinth? He had gone to the Jews first, but they rebuked him. And Paul says, I'm washing my hands of this, I'm going to the Gentiles. I want you to think about the number of places that Paul went that he was beaten, that he was stoned in 2 Corinthians. He lists out all of these things that he had gone through for the purpose in the gospel of Christ. That he had been shipwrecked, that he was in water, that he had been whipped, that he had been stoned. His head was literally on the chopping block constantly. So he could say to them when he came to them, I was with you and I was in fear. But oftentimes, we take this verse and we lift it out of its context and say, you know what, when we teach, we don't don't have to have great oratory skills. That's not what he was saying. That's not the point that he was trying to make. The point that he was trying to make, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but they were to do something. They had a purpose. They were to demonstrate or prove the Spirit and power so that your faith Might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Did Paul have great oratory abilities? Have you read any of Paul's work? Yeah. He could put a phrase together. But Paul didn't do that, he came to them in simplicity. He came to them at the same level in that they were at. They were in fear, they were trembling, they were being persecuted, and He came to them in the exact same mentality that they had. He taught to them in a simple manner so that they would understand. And it all had one purpose, and that purpose was that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The contrast that he has now set up is those wisdom of men, the, Paul, the Apollos and the Cephas, and those before that he listed out earlier. That was your problem. That's what you were looking at. Not the power and the wisdom of God. That's what I delivered unto you. That's what I gave you. We need to understand that in Paul's time, and if you look at many of the ruins in Greece In Rome, for that matter, you'll see these theaters. And this is actually the city of Corinth. And you'll look in that bottom right corner that I have circled. There was actually a very large theater in Corinth. And you had people, they would do plays. You would have people that had these great oratory abilities that they would give these speeches, and there was philosophical things. And people would come and listen to these things. And Paul said, that's not what I was doing. Not once did Paul enter into the theater to give a great sermon. He came to them to deliver the power and the wisdom of God. And that was the example that he sets for us as well. The simplicity of the message and the power of the cross is what saves people's lives. You can dig into God's Word, understand God's Word. You can understand the greatest tenets and principles of His Word. But you need to be able to relay it in a manner that's simple, that people can understand. Instead of trying to rely on our ability and what great things that we can say, we rely on God and His wisdom and His Word. Paul then kind of takes turns to this continued thought process of foolishness and wisdom, but he drives home the point of wisdom. Yet among you, among the mature, we do impart wisdom in verse 6 of chapter 2. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. I want you to notice what Paul says there. He talks about, calls such believers mature and therein lies the problem that Paul was writing to them about was their maturity or the lack of their maturity. Since Paul had left them and written this letter, it had been, I want to say, approximately 18 months, two years, somewhere in that range. Then developed. They were having a problem with maturity. But the problem with their maturity was they had felt that they had grown in the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of God. So they viewed themselves as mature. They had puffed themselves up as mature. And as a matter of fact, it's implied later on in, in this book, as well as in 2 Corinthians, that they believed what Paul was teaching was immature. And that's quite amazing. Paul combats that by saying that, we, that he didn't impart the wisdom of God, or that he did impart the wisdom of God, and that the mature would actually understand that. In verse 9, it is written, What no man, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who have him. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 65. And I want you to understand the reason why. God did it in this way. We're going to look at Romans, the end of Romans, as Paul's concluding Romans chapter 16. It says, Now to him that has the power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest or made known, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Why was this done? It was done for you and I. And as Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, that's exactly what he's telling him. This was done for all of you. The gospel plan was for you. The gospel plan and what we are teaching you, this is God's wisdom laid out before you. They were saints. They were holy ones. They were set apart and sanctified. But they didn't understand what the greatest principle was in the power of the cross and what Paul had been trying to teach them and their immaturity had begun to reign in their lives. In verse 11, For who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. And now as Paul continues his transition on talking about the wisdom of God, he begins to tell us where it comes from and how we have it and how he had it. I don't know what Jason's thinking unless Jason tells me what he's thinking. Whether he tells me orally or he writes it down, I don't know what he's thinking. And he says the same thing here. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit. And the Spirit which had delivered that wisdom from God to Paul and the other apostles likewise was from God. He goes on to say, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Paul's driving home that this wisdom, this power of the cross, this thing that you now think is immature, this thing that you're struggling with, that this was given to us directly by God. That there was no other source, that this isn't their ability or their teaching, that this was delivered to them by God. And he sets up this contrast once again between the natural person and the spiritual person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The natural doesn't understand it. This is foolish. The communion that we take every Sunday, this is foolish. Why would we break bread and drink fruit of the vine that represented a body that was submitted to capital punishment? That's unwise. It's foolish. But to the spiritual person, it is in the power of God. He concludes this section, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. He asks a good question. And it, it's reminiscent of Job in the book of Job as Job goes to God and through all of his problems. And he pretty much says, "I demand a court with God, and God grants him that court." And God asks him some questions. "Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth?" Paul asks something very similarly. Who has understand, understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Who are we to say that we understand him, that we give him instruction, or in Job's case, actually go and say, you have to answer my questions. But you know, it's the same way 2,000 years later. Thousands of years before Paul wrote this to Corinth, he had, we had the same problem, we see it in the book of Job. 2,000 years later, We see it today in the lives around us. People demand something from God as if they understand Him. They demand something from God as if they're on the same level or plateau as God. Who are we? We didn't put this ball in motion, we had nothing to do with its creation. But at the end of this, Paul punctuates it with one very clarifying thing. But we have the mind of Christ. That is a comforting statement. That is a declarative statement. That we have the mind of Christ. I want you to think real quick. I'm going to ask you a question and think of who are the smartest people that you know? Somebody's going to raise their own hand. The two smartest people I know are in this room today, my father and my father-in-law. And it wasn't because of any great intelligence that they have, although they are really smart men. It was their ability to relate that intelligence. When I was younger, I, loved, I didn't love it when he did it. I hated it when he did it. But my dad would ask me these questions. And he would ask me these questions, and then ask another question, and ask another question. And I was like, stop with the questions. But he always wanted me to get to a point. And he had this beautiful way of getting me to understand something through questions. And I look back at it as an adult, and I was like, man, that guy was smart. My father-in-law, when I used to be a mortician and I started doing IT work, he was the first person I worked for and taught me everything that I began to learn through IT. And he taught me some things that stuck with me for years. When dealing with a problem, he would say, look at the most obvious thing first. If a computer's not turning on, is it plugged in? Then you begin to break it down. He would always tell me, there's not anything that you break that I can't fix. You know what he was allowing me to do? He was allowing me to mess up. That's what he was allowing me to do. Until one day I actually broke something that he couldn't fix. I actually plugged something in wrong and melted an entire motherboard, and he walked in and goes, well, can't fix that. (laughs) They're the two smartest men I know. No matter how much I love and appreciate everything that they did to me, did for me, and gave me, it is not the mind of Christ. Their wisdom and knowledge in this world, I appreciate. The great things that, I, that they have taught me, I try to relay them in my life to my children. But it is not the mind of Jesus Christ. I only get to the mind of Jesus Christ by going to His Word. In the book of John... In chapter 17 and verse 20, Christ was praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, That they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That was a beautiful prayer on your behalf. Christ wanted unity. Why did he want unity? He says it there twice. He wanted unity because it would show God's love. And show that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. In unity, points to the power of the cross. In unity, it shows that God loves us just as He loved Christ. This morning, as we think about our lives, what drives unity in your life? What drives unity in this congregation? The only answer is the power of the cross. We can look to no other thing than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All of the abilities and the peripherals and all of those things that are in this world, they do not come above the power of the cross. Because without that, you cannot have the unity that Jesus Christ prayed for. So that we could show Him and us that He is the one Messiah. Division is not an easy subject to talk about. It's not something that we oftentimes think about until it's too late. Paul was dealing with the uh, division honestly after it already happened. Our goal in studying books like 1 Corinthians is to head those things off. To make sure that we don't have those things. To make sure that we're not puffing ourselves up. To make sure that our mindset is in the right place at all times. And that place is Christ and Him crucified. Paul talked about being baptized. Have you done that? The church that he was writing to, those members had been baptized, and they had been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That it was a faithful response to that gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was their response. The question is this morning is, have you done that? Have you began the process of submitting yourself to that cross and to that power? This morning, I'm also aware that we sometimes have struggles and we have problems in life. Sometimes we just need a hug. Sometimes we need greater help than that. If you would find yourself in either of these groups and you need to be baptized or you need assistance in any way that we can help you, we would ask you to come forward as we sing the song that's been selected.